So, this will begin on time. Uh, you were supposed to read this chapter in chapter two. So, uh, since you bought the book, hopefully I thought get your, your money's worth and actually go over what's in the book. Very briefly, there's some important points. Um, I spoke yesterday about um, different points of view that we have a certain we have certain physical objects, namely we have texts, scriptures, we have religious communities, real things in the world. And then there's different interpretations. On one side, there's a, there's a scholarly interpretation which tends to be guided by prevailing Western notions because academia also goes through many different fads and different periods. And then on the other side, there's a traditional interpretation. And I indicated last time that I'm trying to be neutral and fair and um, of course, we're hearing the voice of, uh, of the Western academic approach, but we also have to hear the voice of the traditional interpretations, among other reasons, because they're often very intelligent and coherent, and, uh, and it's their culture. It doesn't mean their interpretation is automatically right, but I think we should at least be fair and balanced, and then you can all make up your own mind. So, uh, in the beginning of the chapter that uh, I'm sure you all carefully studied. Um, I have a question. Yes. Um, on the syllabus. Yes. Oh. And then it says to read chapter two. Okay, yeah, that was, thank you for pointing out. That was, that's probably confusing, so I apologize for that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I, um, what I meant to indicate, which I probably didn't do clearly enough, so, sorry is that the, uh, for each date, the questions and the reading are for that date. In other words, by the time you get there, but don't worry about it if you didn't do it, because uh, it, was, it was ambiguous. So. so for the future, anyway, uh, please read, like, for example, for next week, 29, uh, there are certain questions, certain readings, so please read that and answer the questions by Friday. So as far as today, it's like whatever. Yeah, yeah, if you did the questions, please, uh, perhaps, I, I said in the beginning, but since we didn't do that on the way out, you could perhaps just drop them here. So, uh, sorry if there's any confusion. Again, I, after last Monday's class, I thought it might not have been clear enough on certain points, so I actually drew this. And this is the basic structure of the class. Uh, this is the first half of the semester, and then the other half is the second half of the semester. The first half of the semester, all we talk about will basically fit within a certain historical structure. And so the earliest period is called Vedic, as from the word Veda, which means knowledge. And we call it that because the earliest stratum, the earliest level of sacred literature in India is called the Veda. And so therefore, this is the earliest period when there's really one very dominant religion, or not a religion in the modern sense, like, like a corporate body, but just a bunch of people who agreed on a lot of things. And so this is the earliest Vedic period. Then Buddhism arose at a certain point, approximately 24, 2500 years ago, and uh, explicitly uh, denied a lot of the major claims and practices of, of the Vedic religion. So there was a real uh, dialectic there. And then what happened over the centuries is what I'm going to call early Hinduism. In other words, Buddhism and, and the Vedic religion kind of 
uh, they ended up agreeing on a lot of things. They learned to live together in peace. They influenced each other. And although they remained two separate religions, they were, everybody was getting along and they were alike in many ways. In fact, by the end of Buddhism in India, it's often said that it had become almost like another kind of Hinduism. So, now, this is, at this stage, what you call early Hinduism, and I'll say a word about the word Hindu. A word about the word. Uh, then something happens. About a thousand years ago, there's an Islamic or Muslim invasion in India. And uh, that changes everything. It really transforms India in many ways. Again, some things remain the same, but in other ways, India is transformed. And uh, on the Hindu side or Vedic side, they have to respond and sort of re-articulate what they're doing in the face of this uh, very violent, challenging situation. That goes on for a while, approximately five or six hundred years of Muslim rule in many parts of India, not everywhere. And then Europe sort of waltzes into India with the best of motives. And that's another situation. Europe and India. And eventually the, the English come as traders and end up governing India. And again, it's a new reality, and there is a Vedic Hindu response. It's a very creative tradition, which has tremendous internal resources, and they find a way to respond to this. And then finally, in 1947, India becomes independent after World War II. And again, by this time, uh, you could say Hinduism is fully in the modern age and is responding to its position in an increasingly globalized modern world. So these are the, this is the first half of the semester, this is the second half of the semester. The first paper, basically, whatever you want to talk about, go, it, it takes place within this historical structure, these three stages. And the second paper in the second half of the semester uh, consists of these three stages. So I hope that's more clear in case it wasn't the first time. So what I'm talking about right now is um, sort of following uh, this book, Introducing Hinduism, there are certain very basic ideas in Indian religion, uh, certain basic terms uh, that, that you really need to know in order to follow what's going on. And so I want, I'm going to go through some of those. And uh, some of these we're going to talk about today, some of it goes back to the earliest period. And there are ideas that got developed and formulated, articulated, re-articulated throughout this period here. But we're on this side right now. So... Um, the Hindu conception of time, the first thing I wanted to point out is what I consider to be a clear tilt on the part of Professor Rodriguez in his presentation of Hinduism. And so I'm going to point that out so you'll kind of be aware of these tilting tendencies. Um, he says actually uh, on uh, page 45, Hindus accept the notion that time and creation move in repetitive cycles. The origin of this idea may derive from observations of the yearly cycle of repetitive seasonal change. What he's referring to is that um, you find not only in ancient India, also in the classical world, in ancient Greece and so on, you find this notion that it's not that there's just a, let's say like a big bang from the secular point of view or a creation from nothing from the certain biblical points of view, and then time just moves forward like an arrow, so that everything that happens, happens for the first and only time. Time begins and just moves in one direction forever. Uh, that is sort of a Middle Eastern notion. 
the classical Western notion, classical Western civilization, also the Indian notion is that things move in cycles. It doesn't mean that the exact same things repeat, but take the four seasons. Like now, for example, it's the end of August. So if you've been in Gainesville for a while and you've seen many ends of August, each one is, in a sense, unique, but you've seen it all before and you know what's coming. You know, fall is coming, hopefully the weather will cool off if you're not really into heat. And, um, and then winter will come and then there'll be spring. So if you've lived long enough, so you've seen lots of these cycles, it changes the way you look at it. Let's say, for example, you're in Florida for the first time. You've never seen August in Gainesville. Let's say you're on the Earth for the first time. So, so the idea is there's a certain cosmopolitan view. We're going to talk about the ancient Indian concept of the universe and of time. And in general, comparing them with, uh, let's say, Western notions up until modern science, they're much bigger. The universe is much bigger. There are many universes. Time is much bigger. It's simply a much larger understanding of time and space. And so what the author is referring to here, and then I'll explain what I consider to be its tilt, is that um, there are four great ages that he'll talk about, just like there are four seasons. Uh, well, he, they're in the book. I don't have to write them down. The age of truth, then the Treta Yuga, they're called Yugas, or like these great earthly or cosmic seasons, the Dwapar Yuga and Kali Yuga. We're in the Kali Yuga, which is considered the worst age. The first age lasts about 1,800 years, then 1,200 years, then 800, they keep decreasing by 25%. So we get to this age, which lasts about 400,000 years. These are big numbers. And just as the length of an age, of these four ages, decreases by 25%, Dharma, or virtue, piety, goodness, decreases by 25% in each age. You find very similar notions in ancient Greek writers, if you know Hesiod and Homer, uh, they both have their own versions of this, actually. Uh, Hesiod has a very, who is sort of a contemporary of Homer, says very much the same thing. So this was an ancient idea, that there are four great seasons on Earth, they last for hundreds of thousands of years, virtue decreases, and the length of time decreases, and the duration of life decreases. If you think of the Bible, where people live for 500 years or 400 years and so on, it's the same idea. It's also in the Bible. That in each age, people live much longer. The age lasts longer. There's more goodness. And everything decreases. And finally, you get down to this age, called the Kali Yuga, K-A-L-I, the age of quarrel, in which everything is reduced to the minimum. Then after a while, let's say, in about 400,000 more years, give or take the age will end, and uh, a new golden age will begin. So that's the picture of time. It moves in a cyclical way, and there are other technical details in the book you can read. I won't go into all the technical details, but there are various cycles. That's the most important one, the Yuga cycle, these great ages. So in trying to explain how ancient Indians came up with this, uh, Professor Rodriguez says that this idea may derive from observation of the yearly cycle of repetitive seasons. The ancient Indians might have looked at the seasons and thought, hey, as below, so above. If, it, if it's happening on Earth, maybe it happens on a larger scale. Maybe that's true. There's another possibility, which is the theory that ancient Indians would have, that this really happens. These are real cosmic seasons, and uh, people within that ancient culture and other ancient cultures actually gained access to this information. So that's their explanation of it, and then Mr. Rudd. Now what's interesting is that uh, in the book it doesn't give both views. 
I mean, we have a fact. In the middle, we have a simple fact, which is that ancient Indians and modern Indians, actually, have always, they believe this. They believe this to be true. Now, there's an interpretation on one side, which is they looked around at the seasons and kind of imagined, you know, they, they, they projected that onto a larger scale. There's another interpretation, which is coming from the culture itself, that this is the way it really is, and we have authoritative books that describe the way the universe is. Now, I don't see how, as a teacher in a public university, I can privilege one or the other interpretation. Because on the Western side, Professor Rodriguez wasn't there. And there's no modern scholar that was there and actually watched people engage in that speculative process. Nor can I say that it necessarily, you know, that this is a true thing coming from the scripture, not in a public university. So therefore, we have two interpretations, and one really is not obviously more true than the other. But in the book, we only get one on the Western side. So to me, that's a tilt. It's not evil, but it's not absolutely objective either. So I wanted to point that out. Uh, so, another tilt, I found another thing that sounded a little on one side to me, and that is on page 46, um, talking about the idea that there are, there are cycles of creation and annihilation, destruction. This is a very prominent feature of ancient Indian cosmology, that the, the world is created, it goes on for, it may go on for hundreds of millions of years or trillions of years, and then there are destructions, everything is destroyed, and then it's born again. I mean, in other words, it's sort of like the cosmic version of reincarnation. Just as we come into a body, we do what we do, and then the body dies, we move on. So in the same way, the, the whole universe <coughs> is manifested, and then it does what it does, and then it's wrapped up again, and then it comes out again. So these cycles, so creation is not something that happened once, it, it just happens lots of times. And the particular way of creation happens uh, according to a lot of ancient Indian literature, is that Vishnu, and we'll talk a lot about Vishnu, one of the great deities of, of ancient Indian and modern Indian tradition, lies down on the serpent bed, Ananta, this other form of, of the divine. And from his navel, from Vishnu's navel, comes a, a cosmic lotus stem. It, it flowers into a lotus flower, blossoms. And then on that lotus flower, Brahma takes birth, the creator, the, the demiurgos of uh, Plato. The, the engineer, the creator of the universe, not God with a capital G, just the engineer of the universe. And you'll see many, you see a lot of Indian religious art depicting this, Vishnu lying down on this serpent, this sacred serpent, and then this lotus flower coming up, and Brahma, the creator, taking birth. This is very, in India, this, everyone kind of knows this, that this. And then Brahma creates the universe, which originally, and he himself comes from Vishnu. So now, what the book says here is that uh, the symbolic, the symbolic representation of the pralaya, the destruction of the universe, is the deity Vishnu asleep on the cosmic serpent. Vishnu represents a subtle yet powerful principle that endures beyond the seeming ends of the cosmic cycle of creation. This activity is symbolized by a lotus flower with a long stalk growing like an umbilical cord from Vishnu's navel. So we have symbolic and then represents a principle and again symbolized. The simple fact is that for a lot of people, since ancient times in India, this is really what happens. This is really what happens. There really is Vishnu. Vishnu really, he's really there. And there's really a lotus flower that comes up. It's a huge cosmic thing. And Brahma really takes birth. 
And that's really what happens. It's not symbolic, and it doesn't represent the principle, it's just what happens. So again, uh, it's, a, it's a nice book, but the professor, I mean, Dr. Rodriguez, it's just not, I feel, giving a fair and balanced presentation. Because there are, and it's not obvious to me that the, that the interpretation that it's just symbolic and all that is obviously true, because we don't know that. As students in a secular university, we don't see it either way. So we can't really say what it is, but, so we should present both sides. That's my point. Now, another very important thing is the purusha. The purusha, I'm going to write that word. This is a Sanskrit word, which... Uh, the purusha, uh, the dot under the S means it's S-H. The purusha is the person. And this is a very ancient name, in a sense, for God. The person, like capital P. Uh, what the professor is referring to there in that book is uh, something, the tenth book of the Rig Veda. The Rig Veda is the oldest Sanskrit literature. It's the oldest uh, language we have from India in Sanskrit. And it's called the Rig Veda because the word Rig in Sanskrit means a hymn. So it's the Rig Veda, it's knowledge of the hymns. And basically it's a very large, very sophisticated hymn book. So in the tenth book, there, there are ten books in that Rig Veda. In the tenth book, there is something called the Purusha Sukta. Sukta literally means well said, the, the hymn to the Purusha. And this, actually, I can uh, have it here. I'll read it so you get an idea what this stuff sounds like. Uh, in which, what's going to happen is there's this cosmic person, and uh, this person is going to be sacrificed, is going to become the sacrifice. And uh, out of the sacrifice, uh, basically the universe comes out, creation comes out, and ultimately the social orders, which we'll talk about later, the brahmanas, this hierarchical social order, the brahmins, the warrior kings, the kshatriyas, the vaishas, the merchants, and the, the workers, the shudras, they're symbolically, here it is symbolic, on different parts of the body so that the social order actually comes from God and the social order simply is a, is a manifestation of the will of God and these different social orders are on the body of God. Uh, so anyway, uh, this hymn, uh, here it is. If they say the man, the bad translation, uh, Purusha can often mean a male person, but it really means a person. It doesn't refer to a human being. A man is kind of like a human. It means also, I'll just say the person. The person has a thousand heads, a thousand eyes, a thousand feet. The ancient Sanskrit is... Om Sahasraksha, Sahasrapat, you know, Sahasrashirsha, Purusha. Anyway, it's a, it's a very famous hymn that's often chanted today in India. It is the person who is all this, whatever has been, whatever is to be. He is the ruler of immortality. And, uh, and so on. And then they anointed this person, the sacrifice, born at the beginning upon the sacred grass. Within him the gods, sages, and sages sacrificed. Now this sacrifice is similar to something that still goes on in India today. And that is that uh, it's very common people go into the Ganges, the sacred Ganges River, and they take some Ganges water in their hands and they offer it back to the Ganges. And so the idea is that God, as we will find in, in later in, in more philosophical literature, in this ancient Indian conception, God is not only the creator, the builder of the universe, he's also the ingredient cause. In other words, the very ingredients, like, like you know, this chair or your body, the ingredients of the universe are also God's energy. They're also, in a sense, all coming from God. And therefore, like offering Ganges water back to the Ganges, this great Purusha was offered back 
basically to himself. Now, this is very important. We'll talk more about this later when we get into Indian, uh, this uh, Vedic Hindu deity worship, where they have visible icons. And basically, the argument I'm going to make is this is not uh, primitive, and uh, it's not primitive totem worship, but actually, this very, very uh, important part of Indian religion, which is worshiping visible, visible images, even in Buddhism, by the way, they developed is actually based on a very sophisticated philosophical understanding. Whether it's true or not, you know, this is a public university. But in terms of the philosophy behind it, it's based on a sophisticated notion that the universe itself, the ingredients, the physical ingredients of the universe, are somehow also part of God. And therefore, God has the power to manifest in the ingredients of the universe. And they thought this, I believe, not because they were primitive, but because they actually had very sophisticated ontological notions. They had very developed ideas of the nature of existence. Whether they're true or not is another issue, but at least it's a sophisticated philosophy. Yes, please. And, um, you're saying God, but um, yes. from what I read, they have many gods, so which God are you referring to? Okay. Good question. Yeah. Um, there's evidence that um, this Vedic culture is not really polytheistic. In fact, um, I'll give you a few examples of that. And as far as what God, uh, at the level of the Rig Veda, it's not absolutely clear, although there's some hints and indications, and then in later literature or other literature, people come up with very strong interpretations, like this is what is meant by God. But for example, in the Rig Veda, you have a um, one statement that uh, God is, I, I went over this yesterday, actually, God is Kuru Hutam. The word Huta, from which we get the English word God, this is Huta, becomes German God, and the English word God. Huta means invoked, or called upon, in the sense of invoking a deity. And Puru means in, in many ways. And so you have the idea that there's, there's one supreme truth that is invoked through different names. Max Muller, probably the most prominent Indologist student, of, uh, uh, scholar of all this in the, in the 19th century, he coined a term called... Uh, Henotheism, which is still around, you know, it's not used all the time, but it's still around, in the sense that he argued that if you, if you, if you study all this ancient literature, it's not merely polytheistic, but rather what's happening is that different gods at different times are said to stand for one highest truth. And so there's definitely the notion of one supreme truth, one supreme god, but there's a certain flexibility, a certain almost casual approach that because Everything in the universe is a manifestation of God. Different aspects of the universe can stand for God or represent God at different times. And so there's kind of like this relaxed attitude. It's not a jealous God. It's not, it's just sort of a relaxed cosmopolitan view of different. So he called it henotheism. So it, it's not a simple polytheism like Zeus and Hera and all that. Okay. And we'll talk more about that. That was a good question. So, um... Anyway, so much for that. I want to get on to karma, which is the... Uh, one last thing I'll say from this section, that is that um, there's going to be a tension, which will become obvious, between uh, karma, conduct, conduct simply means division. I think in any religion, really, if it's old enough and has enough members, so that it kind of displays all of human types, there's a tension between those who really want to do rituals. They feel that the more you do rituals and ceremonies, elaborate ceremonies, that's the way to 
be religious and to somehow satisfy your religious needs. Other people say, I'm not into rituals, I'm interested in knowledge, wisdom, it's really about wisdom. And these two people don't necessarily kill each other, but there is a tension, there are kind of different approaches. And these two different approaches became formalized in ancient India. And so karma came to mean the ritual approach, performing elaborate ceremonies. Jnana means, jnana means knowledge, Greek gnosis, English knowledge. And so the idea was that uh, in, the, in, the, in the knowledge division, people were concerned with wisdom, understanding. And the real point of any ritual is to get knowledge. It's not just the ritual. In fact, Krishna in the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna will say, uh, Shreyan, Dravya, and so on, that... Um, more important than performing a ritual is to actually get knowledge, because all the rituals are meant to lead to knowledge. So there is this tension between ritual and knowledge. And uh, an example of this tension is found in the Rig Veda, which is a ritual book, where it's said that, um, that somehow the, uh, the truth has concealed God, even from those who merely chant the hymns of praise, priests, since the priests are described as shrouded in ignorance, babbling nonsense. So that's kind of tough love there, but... So, um, there's a lot of stuff to do. I want to make sure I cover everything. Perhaps I'll get on to karma now, and then if we have time, we'll go back to something else. Now, it's, it's important to make a distinction between two uh, closely related ideas, but nevertheless, they're different ideas. One is uh, reincarnation, which in Sanskrit would be punar um, janma, which means uh, literally, again, birth. This is cosmic things were generated. So birth, punar jama. And the other thing is that you not only are a soul reincarnating, karma, reinfleshing, but actually there is a there's an ethical law which governs. You don't merely reincarnate, but you reincarnate according to certain laws and principles, ethical moral principles. And that's what karma is. So I mean, you could imagine a universe in which you're sort of, you know, there's no God, there's no moral law, you're just kind of helplessly wandering from one body to another, and there's no rule, there's no law, there's no justice, there's no fairness about it, it's just all random. So the, so the idea is that you're not, you don't merely take a birth, one birth out of another, but there's an ethical law which governs which body you get. So, um... Now, as soon as you say ethical law, it means it's a teleological system. The Greek word telos means an end or purpose, and then uh, tele teleology means the philosophical view that there are real purposes in the universe. In other words, you can give a purpose to yourself, like I'm going to go so to this place for lunch, or I'm going to take that class. You can create a purpose for yourself. But teleology says that apart from the purposes that you create for yourself, there are objective purposes in the universe for you, that you were born for a reason. Whether you know it or not, there's actually some purpose in your life. There's some purpose just for your existing at all. And so karma is a teleological doctrine because it says there's a moral law and there's a purpose to life. And that by understanding these moral laws and acting properly, you will actually progress in terms of your happiness, your knowledge. And ultimately, uh, you'll get out of this trap of karma and have an eternal life without birth and death. So that's karma. Now, I also wanted to mention that, uh, well, I'll quote from this book. This is not just an Indian idea. It probably first appeared in India. However, 
as uh, we'll read later in this book. There actually, actually, there's a chapter on karma, which I should have recommended. Anyway, the author says, the idea of reincarnation did not originate with Buddhism and had existed in India for several centuries before the Buddhist time. The belief is common to many cultures and was widespread in the classical West, here, well, not America, before coming to be seen as incompatible with Christian doctrine around the 6th century. So until the 6th century, a belief in reincarnation and even karma, a type of moral law governing our rebirth, was really all over the world. And then it was sort of violently discouraged uh, by the church and then later by Islam. So apart from this uh, sort of coercive, violent repression, which included actually killing large numbers of people, including church bishops like Origen, the early church bishop who, who actually taught reincarnation. Uh, so apart from that violent repression, it was actually all over the world. It doesn't mean that everyone believed it, but it was popular all over the world. It's becoming so again uh, because people have the freedom to explore it. So I'm just going to quickly give you a... Um, a little survey of where it was. Just take a minute out. Uh, China. It was generally accepted in Taoism, taught by Lao Tse's distant disciple, Chuang Tzu. Uh, and so about the time of, uh, say, over a, th- a few thousand years ago, about the time of Buddha, perhaps, it was actually fairly popular in China. It was in Taoism. It was in Zoroastrianism, the ancient Persian. Uh, religion, which, by the way, is very close to Vedic. I mean, ancient Persian language is sort of a dialect of ancient Vedic Sanskrit. And so you also found it in Zoroastrianism. It's uh, found in shamanistic systems in Africa, the South Pacific, rural Asia, and even Alaska. And in Islam, because Islam basically took their cue on many things from the biblical traditions, they tended to suppress it. But the Sufis, the the, uh, Sufi mystics, devotional mystics, the Sufis, have always believed in reincarnation. It's always in, karma is always a part of the Sufi doctrine. So in that sense, and Sufism, by the way, until it was violently repressed, was a major part of Islam. It was an extremely popular, widespread part of Islam until it was violently, murderously repressed. So, pre-Christian Europe, pre-Christian Europe, the good old pagans, uh, the original settlers of North and Central Europe, the Teutons, the Celts, and the Druids had fairly sophisticated religious systems, and they had reincarnation. It was in ancient Greece, Plato, Pythagoras, perhaps Socrates, and other people. So, uh, Plotinus, of course, the, the great Roman philosopher. And uh, also, once, uh, once the Christian church started to repress uh, reincarnation ideas, that's why you had all these secret societies like in the, uh, what do you call it, the Da Vinci Code, you know, that kind of stuff. We won't go into the historicity of the Da Vinci Code, but there were secret societies like the Hermetic Order, the Knights Templar who really existed, the Albigenses who had the good fortune of living near the French Riviera. So you had all these different secret societies, even in the Christian world, they had to be secret because, you know, they were too young to die. So... They tend to believe in reincarnation also. Basically, wherever there has not been violent repression, large numbers of people all over the world have tended to find this compelling. Not everybody, not if, but a lot of people all over the world. So, why? I mean, what does it have going for it? I want to talk about that also. Um, okay, there's the issue of theodicy, which I'll explain. Uh, theodicy is a technical, philosophical term which is also called the problem of evil. 
And uh, so why people, often thinking people, often thinking people tend to be attracted to this doctrine. Uh, in Greek, theos, of course, means God, and DK means justice. So theodicy means, is, you know, is there justice under God or under the goddess or whoever is up there managing? So to give a very short version of it, because there's not that much time, in the Christian world, the Christian world that violently suppressed, by killing people, that violently suppressed uh, this idea of reincarnation and karma, uh, they got themselves in a philosophical problem which to this day they haven't gotten out of. And that is, if we are just, it doesn't mean that Christianity is wrong, it just means that philosophically they're up the creek without a paddle. And they recognize this. In fact, it's been, it's the idea that we're born right now, like this is your first life, someone's born with a silver iPod, I guess, in their hand or something, and someone else is born in a country at war or in just some horrible situation where there's all kinds of abuse or violence and so on. So why? Now, of course, all this assumes that there's a triple O God. You know, there's a God who's omniscient, omnipotent, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, and omnibenevolent all good. So if you have some kind of divine authority, which is reasonable, which is just, why is there such fantastic injustice in this world? Now, when you, when you try to explain this, if you are committed to the idea that all of us have never existed before, we were born for the first time in these wildly dissimilar conditions, and yet you have a God who's fair and even, loves all his children equally, it's... Uh, there's no philosophical answer. I mean, they tried the, some of the best minds in the history of Western civilization, took their best shot at it, and came up with uh, nothing. So, in fact, it was so difficult to resolve this that some of the best minds in Christianity, there were a lot of very smart, very good, very devoted people in Christian history. I may not agree with certain of the policies, but, but among the Christians, there have been a lot of very intelligent, very good, saintly people. So they came up with a position called fideism, from the Latin word fide, faith, which is, because I didn't know what else to do about this, that, oh well, because we human beings tend to be proud of our intelligence, and pride takes us away from God, God has intentionally created the world in such a way, and revealed his truth in such a way, so that it's irrational. And the reason that God did this is to humble us and make us realize that our intelligence is useless and we simply need to submit ourselves to God. And I think that's very dangerous. If you separate religion and reason, then you really can't say anything like to terrorists. I mean, you have nothing to say to them because they'll just say, well, this may seem totally irrational to you that we're killing babies or, or you know, women and children. This may seem irrational to you, but God's revelation is irrational. And it's his way of humbling us. So if we separate religion and reason, I think it's, uh, it, gets, it can get very weird very fast. So that's one thing. I think one reason that reincarnation has appeared to people, appealed to people, because it gives a rational, or at least it gives the possibility of talking reasonably about why we're in the conditions we're in. I should also mention this does not mean determinism. This does not mean that, like, why bother? Because everything is predetermined by your karma. The notion of karma is something like if you get on a, let's say, a commercial flight, once you board the plane, the plane takes off, you have to go wherever the plane's going. That was your decision. You can say, well, I changed my mind. I don't really want to fly to Chicago. 
But if you got on the plane, that was your choice. And so the idea of karma is that it creates for us the context of our next life. So we're in a particular body. It doesn't mean that you have no free will. It just means that you exercise your free will within a context that you yourself chose. So um, I think that's quite simple. Like on the airplane, I mean, you can read the fascinating airline magazines they provide you or not read it. I mean, you can watch the movie or not. You can talk to the person next to you or not. You can go to sleep or eat the food or not eat the food. Or, I mean, you have all kinds of choices. You have free will on a plane, but by your previous choice, you're stuck on the plane until it lands. So karma doesn't say that you have no free will. It just says that you've chosen a context. Like the guy you know, jumps off the building as he changes his mind, as he's passing every floor, he says, so far, so good. Anyway, so, so that's the idea. We choose a context. Within that context, which manifests our karma, we still have new choices. We still have free will. Uh, karma, in that sense, is existential, I wanted to say. Because if, if you know the history of existentialism, I'll try this very quickly. Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the great existentialists of the 20th century, uh, was a young guy during World War II. And he saw the Nazi invasion of his country. And he saw what seemed to him, it seemed to him that a lot of his fellow French people were cooperating with the Nazis above and beyond the call of duty. Like, it wasn't just saving their necks. They were cooperating, like, more than they had to. And saying, well, what can I do? Like, there's nothing I can do. And so Sartre kind of rebelled against that, and he said, no, we have free will. We're responsible for our choices. Sartre was also responding to a growing tendency because of the influence of Freud, a tendency towards psychological determinism, which means that, and you can see this all the time, even today, like, I can't help getting angry. Like, maybe I got angry at you. Maybe you didn't deserve for me to get angry at you. But look, you know, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know how I've been treated. So therefore, even though it might have been rude and inappropriate for me to get mad at you, it's not my fault because I'm psychologically determined. I had to get angry because of what's happened to me in the past. So this is psychological determinism. But you're, you're never really responsible for your behavior because your behavior is all, always the result of something that happened to you. It's not your fault. So Sartre was also fighting against psychological determinism, which means giving up personal responsibility. So existentialism stresses individual responsibility. Now, in the case of karma, it's actually empowering in this sense. It says that even though maybe some things in your life were predetermined by your choices, but that means you can create your future. You actually have the power to basically reinvent yourself in any way you like. So ultimately, it's not like this destructive uh, determinism that actually says that, that you have the power to do what you want if you just take the time to do it. Yes, please. Huh? Um, the psychological determinism, what's the name of the other one where you have the... Existentialism? Right. That was it. We could talk about existentialism in a different class. So, uh, now another thing I wanted to make, there, there's, uh, the author of this book makes a point which I feel is kind of a, well, I don't want to say a cheap shot, that would be kind of unkind, but he says something which I feel is not really correct. Now, in, in, in this, this is about Buddhism. In the chapter on karma, the author uh, is trying to distinguish the Buddhist version of karma, which is somewhat different, from the Vedic Hindu version of karma. And so the author makes the following point on page 37. Uh, karma is not a system of rewards and punishments meted out by God, because they don't have a God in philosophical Buddhism. They very much have gods 
in, in Buddhism on the ground as a world religion. I think we'll talk about this uh, uh, very large gap between certain sophisticated forms of Buddhist philosophy and what everyone was actually doing in the Buddhist world. So in Buddhist philosophy, uh, karma is not a system of rewards and punishments meted out by God, but a kind of natural law akin to the law of gravity. Individuals are thus individuals are the sole authors of their good and bad fortune. Karmic actions are moral actions and so on. Now, all of us, I think, to some extent, want justice. We want to feel a sense of justice. That's another appeal of the law of karma. The sense that there is justice in the universe. It may take some time. The wheels of justice may turn slowly, but there will be justice. Now, on the Vedic Hindu side, it was not at all the idea that there's an angry, jealous, sort of, he needs to be medicated, God, who is just going to whimsically intervene in your life and like, I don't like what you did, so I'm going to take you out. Or, <laughs> and actually, this is the picture of the gods you find, for example, in Homer. That's why Plato in his Republic revolts against Homer, who was the center of Greek culture, really, Homer. Because the Greek gods are really whimsical. It's like, I think I'm going to favor Achilles. Why? I don't know. I just like him. <laughs> and it, it's not based on any objective law or moral principles. It's just like, yeah, like, I think Hector is cute. I'm going to you know, have him kill so-and-so. <laughs> so, in this system, in, in the Vedic Indian system, it's very much the idea that there are objective laws, or objective principles, reasonable principles in which people actually get what they deserve. And then in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, I type this somewhere. Yes, we'll, we'll get to this much later. In the Bhagavad Gita 5.15, Krishna says, uh, chapter 5, text 15, not that they kasichit papam, nachayva sukratam vibhu. I, speaking as God, Krishna, I don't take responsibility for people's good and bad actions. They're just doing their thing. And when people do good and bad things, they get reasonable responses. In other words, there's an objective, hands-off, from God's point of view, reasonable moral system where people get fair reactions. They're good and bad actions. That's stated, I mean, I was going to quote you from some of these ancient texts, like, punyena punyo bhavati. By piety, a person becomes pious. Papena papu bhavati. By, by bad actions, a person has troubles. And so... Uh, God doesn't really interfere in that sense with this objective sy system. So the idea that in Buddhism, because there's not, in philosophical Buddhism, there's not a God, and therefore it's just a fair system, the, the gods or, or God in this Vedic Hindu system, they're not like the, like the whimsical Greek gods that are, that are just kind of messing with people's lives. That's not what we have. So I wanted to make that distinction. Uh, any questions on that? So, um, clock is ticking here. What did I do with the uh, holy books? Oh, here they are. There's one thing I want to tell you a little, uh, a word of caution. And that is, uh, the chronology dating ancient India is extremely speculative. And uh, this, when you read books, they'll often say, like, first there was this old book, then this book, then that book. It's extremely speculative. And uh, this is something I'll, I'll talk about more later. We'll talk about it regularly, but briefly. Uh, the dating is done by language. So let's say, for example, you take one book, the Veda, which I've written up there, which is the Karnakanda book, and then you have another book called the Upanishads. 
Now you'll find in every book on the subject the Vedas older than the Upanishads. That first, and you'll read this again and again and again. You'll always read this in books about this. That people are doing rituals in India. At a certain point, people start thinking, "Wait a second, must be more to life than rituals." You know, in order to get material rewards, must be something more like, "Who am I? Where do I come from? What is life all about? Is there eternal life beyond this world?" So they start thinking, and as they start thinking, they produce other literature, the Upanishads. Now. This is a nice little scenario, and in an individual's life it may happen that way. You may kind of be living your life at a certain point, start thinking like, what is life all about? The problem with dating things is that on this side, the Vedic side, the ritual side, I mean to say the ritual side, the actual sound of the language, the, the exact words, the exact letters, the power was in the sound. The power was in the sound. So in these ancient rituals, the idea was that when you chant certain mantras, you create a certain vibration. And that precise vibration brings about a powerful effect in the world. It's the actual vibration of sound. So if you change even one letter or one accent, it doesn't work. It's like a very sophisticated machine that won't work if you turn one thing. So give one simple example. But on the, on the other side, it didn't matter because this is about ideas. This is about ideas. So as language changes on the idea side, like in English, for example, Chaucer, Shakespeare, modern English, on the idea side, they just keep speaking in whatever language people are talking at the time. Whereas on this side, they preserve the oldest language. And so when people start writing, which doesn't happen until only about 2,300 years ago in India, when you start writing these things out, it freezes it. Writing freezes the literature. And so this gets frozen at a later stage of language than this, because this language was always preserved, and that wasn't. These were, this was about ideas. People didn't care about the exact language. So it may give the false impression that this is older. I'll give you an example. This is a famous example that's given. Uh, there's, there's one compound word, Indra Shatru. Indra is Zeus, basically, the god of rain and thunder, the head of the gods. And Shatru means mortal enemy. So I, in Sanskrit grammar, which is extremely sophisticated, if you put the accent here, Indra Shatru, it means Indra, who is the mortal enemy of a particular person. Indra was the mortal enemy who will kill a particular person. If you put the accent here, Indra Shatru, it means the mortal enemy of Indra. So, so some Brahmin in ancient times, this famous story from the old text, was doing a sacrifice, and he wanted to produce out of this mystic sacrifice a powerful being who would kill Indra. So he wanted an Indra Shatru. He wanted to produce a mortal enemy of Indra who would kill Indra. But... He got distracted, something happened, and he got the accent in the wrong place. He said, Indra Shatru. So instead, he got exactly the opposite result. He produced a being for whom Indra was the mortal enemy, and Indra killed him. And so, you know, all of cosmic history was changed by one misplaced accent. So obviously, that's on this side, the ritual side. So on this side, the exact language in the oldest form was painstakingly preserved. Whereas on this side, it was about ideas. And so as language was changing over time, at a certain point, it gets frozen because they write it down. And so it, it looks like this is much newer than that. Whereas if you look at the picture in traditional literature, like Itihasa Purana, these uh, ancient books of India that talk about the way the past used to be, Purana means ancient past, they give a picture of this ancient Vedic culture in which there were always rituals going on, and there were always sages wandering about there were always sages wandering about thinking. They were actually thinking. And they had ideas. Whereas if you just study, if you date things by language, 
then this is older language than that, the reason being that this language was preserved in its oldest form, and this side, people didn't care. They cared about the ideas, not the physical language. So that's something to keep in mind, that dating is extremely speculative, and so don't get faked out by language that makes it appear like it's not. So I guess time is up for now, so...